Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the new John Girardi Show on Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. The Trump-Russia story continues to develop. I know it's not sort of the front of headlines. It should be the front of headlines. If the shoes were on the other feet, if a Republican outgoing administration had monitored the campaign of an opposing party and really monitored that opposing campaign's candidate as directly as Trump was being monitored by the FBI and by the 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 Obama administration, we would never be hearing the end of it. What happened from 2016 into 2017, in the last days of the Obama administration, during the 2016 campaign, during the 2016 to 2017 transition, during the first days of the Trump administration, in which the FBI withheld information about the Russia investigation from candidate Trump, president-elect Trump, and President Trump, during which Barack Obama himself and Joe Biden were involved in discussions about how to surveil specific Trump administration targets, and wherein the FBI was not just surveilling the Trump campaign, but surveilling Trump himself, using intelligence briefings to surveil Trump. Now, I'm digging into this because Andy McCarthy over the weekend from National Review wrote a big, long story about this at National Review. You can read it on my Twitter page, twitter.com slash Fresno Johnny. That's at Fresno Johnny. So I want to go through this bit by bit because there are some Democrat narratives here and there are some really important things to think about as it relates to our politics, as it relates to our public policy. All right. So here's the way McCarthy starts this. Long-sought documents finally pried from U.S. intelligence agencies prove that the Obama administration used the occasion of providing a standard intelligence briefing for major party candidates as an opportunity to investigate Donald Trump on suspicion of being a Russian asset. I say investigate Donald Trump advisedly. As I contended in, in his book, McCarthy wrote this book called Ball of Collusion, which I really recommend, Um, The target of the probe spearheaded by the FBI, but green-lighted by the Obama White House and abetted by the Justice Department and U.S. intelligence agencies, was Donald Trump. Not the Trump campaign, not the Trump administration. Those were of interest only insofar as they were vehicles for Trump himself. The campaign, which the Bureau and its apologists risably claim was the focus of the investigation, would have been of no interest to them were it not for Trump. Or do you suppose that they moved heaven and earth, surreptitiously plotted in the Oval Office, wrote CYA memos to cover their tracks, and laboriously sculpted FBI reports because they were hoping to nail George Papadopoulos? No. So here's the big point McCarthy's making. You don't like Donald Trump? Fine. The investigation here was indeed about Donald Trump. But the scandal is about how abusive officials can exploit their awesome powers against any political opponent. 
And the people who authorized this political spying will be right back in business if, come November, Obama's vice president is elected president, notwithstanding that he's yet to be asked serious questions about it. And this is the point McCarthy's saying, all right? The executive branch is in charge of law enforcement. It's in charge of intelligence. That's all under the president. The president runs the executive branch of government. He's got underneath him the FBI. He's got the CIA. He's got this. He's got that. The power that those agencies wield to investigate criminal activity, to spy on people. And I use the word spy, okay? The FBI and the CIA has counterintelligence officials. What They are spies, okay? They do spy work. They surreptitiously eavesdrop on what people are saying. They get wiretaps on people. They tap people's phones. They are spies. And there's an enormous power that the executive branch of the government has, particularly when it comes to political opponents, all right? The notion that we had the Obama administration in power in 2016, and it starts spying not just on the Trump campaign, not just on Trump campaign officials, they're spying on Donald Trump himself. And the FBI fought to keep these records away from Congress for years and years and years and years. And finally, the Justice Department, under the leadership of Bill Barr, by the way, leadership that you know Jeff Sessions, because he recused himself from the single most important thing that Trump had to deal with, and frankly, you know, whether or not Sessions was right or wrong in recusing himself, I think Trump was totally fair to want to fire him. Because guess what? It's the single biggest it was the single biggest issue for the first term of Trump's presidency. And he was saddled with a just with a attorney general who couldn't do anything about it. Okay, here's this huge issue of basically the Justice Department was spying on him as a candidate, and then in the early days of his presidency, as a candidate, as president elect, and in the early days of his presidency, and Sessions apparently thought he couldn't do anything about it. So what was this spying that happened on Trump himself? On Trump himself. So to understand how the FBI was spying on him, we have to understand the kind, certain kinds of intelligence briefings that the justice that that various presidential candidates receive. Okay, so it's it's the election, all right. Uh, it's 2016. At a certain point, everyone realizes it's either Hillary or Trump. Okay, there are basically mechanisms in place whereby you, you don't want these people to get into office on January 20th and not have had a you know have absolutely no knowledge of what's going on with American intelligence operations. Okay, so the idea is. And you might not know who's going to win the election before November. So probably, and this is probably starting right now. Okay. Joe Biden is probably starting to get these briefings. Both of the major candidates for a given political, for the, the two main political parties 
start receiving intelligence briefings. So at some point in 2016, both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were receiving regular intelligence briefings so that regardless of who won, when they came into office on January 20th of 2017, they would have some background. Okay, so they're getting some intelligence briefings while they're candidates before the election. So here's the thing, though. The FBI and other agencies was using the opportunity of those intelligence briefings basically to spy on the president. What we're getting now are all these memos coming out, all these memos that the FBI didn't want to give up to Congress when Congress was asking for it. This was stuff that Devin Nunes was trying to get back when he was the chair of the Intelligence Committee. And everyone thought Devin Nunes was a wacko and a moron and a stooge for President Trump. Nunes was right about all this stuff. So I'm going to go into this, okay? Uh, This is one of the really important points uh, to McCarthy's story. So he's, uh, he's looking at these memoranda written by an FBI agent named Joe Pientka, okay? So here's, here's what McCarthy writes. Among the most significant of the newly declassified documents is a memorandum written by FBI agent Joe Pientka III, the case agent on Trump-Russia. It was Pientka who, at the FBI's New York City headquarters on August 17, 2016, okay, so he's, it's August 17, 2016, he's giving Donald Trump briefings about intelligence, he's an FBI agent giving Trump briefings on intelligence, Trump is a candidate right now. It was Pientka who, at the FBI's New York City headquarters on August 17, 2016, purported to brief Trump and two top campaign surrogates, uh, Michael Flynn and then New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who was slated to run the Trump the transition if Trump won. In reality, Pientka and the FBI regarded the occasion not as a briefing for the Republican presidential nominee, but as an opportunity to interact with Donald Trump for investigative purposes. Clearly, the Bureau did that because Trump was the main subject of the investigation. The hope was that he'd blurt things out that would help help the FBI prove he was an agent of Russia. The Obama administration and the FBI knew that it was they who were meddling in a presidential campaign, using executive intelligence powers to monitor the president's political opposition. Okay, to monitor President Obama's political opposition. They were using the FBI... Not to just not simply to give Trump to give Trump an intelligence briefing, then candidate Trump. They were trying to get him to say something incriminating. And this is the way they would do it. Right. They would give they would say something to him about Russia and see how he would respond and furiously take notes, contemporaneous notes. Okay, why? It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are they doing that? Because if you do that, even though it's not a recording of the person, it's a contemporaneous account. And that can be entered into court as evidence. Okay? So they're looking at 
how he's responding, his attitude, what specifically he says in response to different things. Okay? And this was, you know, this seems to have been a repeated thing. Okay? Um, so we have the memo from Pientka from that August briefing. Okay? This is exactly what Pientka did in connection with the August 17th briefing. Under the supervision of Kevin Kleinsmith, the rabidly anti-Trump FBI lawyer later found by the Justice Department's Inspector General to have tampered with a key email, and Peter Strzok, remember him? The rabidly anti-Trump counterintelligence agent who was later fired. Peter Strzok, the guy who was texting his girlfriend about how we need an insurance plan for President Trump, that guy. Pienka's significantly redacted seven-page memo is worth reading. The point of it is not the national security information provided to the candidate. That is just context for the Bureau's documenting of statements made by Trump in response. For example, when the topic is the differences in methodology between Russian and Chinese espionage, Pienka carefully notes that Trump asked, Joe, are the Russians bad because they have more numbers of FBI cases? Are they worse than the Chinese? So he's noting these things that Trump is asking about Russia because he's assuming that Trump is some kind of Russian spy. They're building a criminal case against the president, against then-candidate Donald Trump. When the topic turned to signals intelligence, Pienka notes that Trump interjected, yes, I understand it's a dark time, nothing is safe on computers anymore, and then Trump elaborated that his then-10-year-old son, Barron, had broken the code for access to a computer. You know, just the kind of badinage you'd expect from a co-conspirator in a Russian hacking scheme. So they're noting all these things where they think it's like evidence of Trump being, you know, being a Russian asset. Pienka then recounts that when other intelligence agency briefers took over to continue the briefing on other topics, Pienka did not leave. He stayed in the room, actively listening, quote, actively listening for topics or questions regarding the Russian Federation. Here in a classified report, they figure no one will ever see. There is no pretense. FBI agents are monitoring Trump. Pienka notes that when one briefer said the U.S. was the world's leader in counterterrorism, Trump interjected Russia too. And when the discussion turned to cheating by Russia and China in the nuclear test ban treaty, Trump asked who's worse. When the briefer replied, they are both bad, but Russia is worse. Pienka took pains to relate Trump and Christie turned toward each other. And Christie commented, I'm shocked. You're thinking, so what? So now, here's the point McCarthy's trying to make. You listening to this, you may think, so what? Yeah, well, that's the point. They had nothing. They had nothing against Trump. But the agents were exploiting the U.S. political process to try to turn nothing into a federal case. And would any public official voluntarily attend a security briefing ostensibly meant to help him perform his public safety mission if he thought the FBI might be spying on him and writing reports with an eye towards portraying him as a hostile powers mole? This this is the point McCarthy's making. This is such an unbelievable banana republic type action that the Obama administration was doing. They were spying on a opposing political candidate. Obama was spying on the presidential candidate of an opposing party to set him up for future criminal prosecution. That's what was happening, okay? All of these different interactions with Trump, what you ha- whether it was these interactions with Pienka during the campaign where they were giving Trump intelligence briefings, whether it was... Trump meeting with James Comey, where James Comey first tells him 
about the Steele dossier and about these alleged videos of Trump cavorting with you know prostitutes, whatever. Comey had an FBI laptop in the car outside Trump Tower so that after he met with Trump, he could zip down, get into the car, and type down everything about the meeting with Trump because then it could be evidence. This is such a humongous scandal. As Barr said, it's one of the great greatest scandals in American history. And genuinely no one wants to talk about it. Because of coronavirus, because the media doesn't care, because it makes the media look like dolts. We're going to dig into this more coming up next. The John Girardi Show, Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. The John Girardi Show, Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. We're uh, talking about the Russia collusion story and new documents that are coming out vindicating Devin Nunes on the one hand and further demonstrating just how complicit and just how bad, just how horrible the Obama administration actions were in monitoring and spying upon the Trump campaign. Not just the Trump campaign. I shouldn't say the Trump campaign. Not just the Trump campaign. Not against Trump campaign officials, against Donald Trump himself. What we're getting now are declassified documents showing that basically what was happening is in the course of the 2016 campaign and during the 2016 to 2017 transition, FBI agents, FBI officials were using the regular intelligence briefings that candidates get. Okay, so the theory is, and this is probably starting right now with Joe Biden, um, candidates for president that when it gets down to the final two the republicans have their nominee democrats have their nominee those candidates start getting regular intelligence briefings so that basically they regardless of who wins they're going to be prepared have some preparation on these critical matters of national security and national intelligence when they get into office on january 20th so the idea is yes trump is getting these briefings regularly as the president but joe biden needs to get some briefing so that if he wins the election on January 20th, he can kind of hit the ground running. That's sort of the theory behind this. In 2016, Trump was starting to get these briefings. Candidate Trump was starting to get these briefings. But basically, the FBI was using those briefings as opportunities whenever they would mention anything about Russia to Donald Trump. They would note his reactions, note stuff he'd say, and furiously take notes. Have people stay in the room so that they could monitor everything he said, everything he did. Because they were so convinced by the Steele dossier, so convinced that Trump was a mole of the Russians. They were so convinced that because Trump was saying nice things about Russia, that he must be a Russian spy. And so you had this Banana Republic type situation wherein the One president, Barack Obama, was spying on the main presidential candidate of his opposing party. That is Banana Republic stuff. That is the kind of thing you do in a Banana Republic where you want to make sure... I mean, for all of the crap that Trump has taken since suggesting we move back the election. And frankly, I think he deserves some crap for that. I think it's kind of a... A dopey suggestion that immediately makes people nervous when you 
when the president who's in power suggests something that might result in him staying in power longer, people automatically say, nope, that violates a lot of sort of the norms of how we run things in America because, no, we, we, we have to stick with the four-year term. You're, when you're done, you're done. And, and so Trump has gotten a lot of crap about even the suggestion of moving the election. I think a tweet asking the question about moving the election date, while it's dumb and while it's criticism worthy, and it's not even something Trump can do unilaterally, that is not as bad as this. That is not nearly as bad as a sitting president, Barack Obama, giving the okay to basically take an opposing candidate by storm when he's off his guard, when there's no sense that he's the subject of a criminal investigation, to try to get him to say, to basically try to build up a criminal case against an opposing candidate on the grounds that he's some kind of Russian mole when you don't even have any good evidence of it. That's what was going on. And you can see the parallels, all right? Get these administration officials in a place where they feel comfortable, where they're not on guard, when they don't have a lawyer with them. Don't give them transcripts of anything else. Don't give them, you know, a record and see what they say. Test them. Basically do an ambush stealth investigation. This is precisely what happened to General to uh, General Michael Flynn. Okay, Flynn was the incoming national security advisor. He was going to be the national security advisor for the presidency. Okay, Trump has won. It's during the transition. The intelligence establishment hates Michael Flynn. Okay, he's had numerous battles with Andrew McCabe at the FBI. He's had, there is significant disagreement between him and the establishment community. He backed Donald Trump. And basically they're like, all right, we got to take this guy out. So what happens? On the basis of the Logan Act, a law that was passed under President John Adams, which has never successfully been used to prosecute anybody, where no one has even tried to use it since the Civil War. It's a Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Law that's almost certainly unconstitutional. They use that as the basis to have an investigation, a counterintelligence investigation on General Flynn on the basis that, well, he's talking to the Russian ambassador. Of course he's talking to the Russian ambassador. He's the national security advisor. He's Or, or the national security advisor in waiting. He's supposed to have those kinds of conversations. So what do they do? They send two FBI agents to ask him about those conversations. They don't provide him with the transcript, which they have because they were surveilling him. They don't provide him with the transcript of the conversations. They ask him questions about the conversations. He gives an incorrect answer where they don't think he's lying. They just think he, he misremembered some of the details of the conversation. They tell him, don't have your lawyer present. We're just going to meet with you to ask you some questions about it. And then, boom, this is the basis for prosecuting Michael Flynn uh, for false statements to FBI agents 
um, for lying to federal investigators. Flynn is prosecuted for it in the last four years of his life and millions of dollars that he's had to spend uh, on defense attorneys. That's what General Flynn has gone through the last four years because, and that was basically the strategy that was used. As for General Flynn, so for the president. Give the president these normal security briefings as he's a candidate. Okay, again, when you're a can when you're one of the two last candidates standing, you start getting intelligence briefings on the notion that if you're elected president, you need to know some of this stuff on day one. You can't just you know, you can't just learn it all on January twentieth when you're sworn in. Okay, so Trump is getting these briefings. He's in there with, you know, Chris Christie and with Michael Flynn. And basically what's happening is not just let's communicate this to the to this candidate. Basically, what's happening is they are monitoring Trump for his reactions, monitoring Trump for what he says so that they can get evidence of him saying something bad and build a criminal case. That's what was happening. You got to read this story again, written by Andy McCarthy from National Review. You can find it at my Twitter account, twitter.com slash Fresno Johnny. When we come back, I want to get to some really troubling First Amendment type stuff and maybe give you a little lecture about what the First Amendment is and how it's supposed to work. Troubling about how city officials are basically openly saying we are totally okay with First Amendment expression in time of coronavirus for things we like and not for things we don't like. That's coming up next. John Girardi, Power Talk 96.7, AM 1400, and the iHeartRadio app. The John Girardi Show, Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. So I want to get into this story and talk a little bit about the First Amendment. Talk a little bit about the First Amendment and sort of some of the ideas behind it. But it's highlighted by what's going on in D.C. So last Saturday morning, D.C. police arrested two pro-life demonstrators who are in the process of ch- using sidewalk chalk to chalk the message Black Preborn Lives Matter on the public sidewalk in front of a D.C. Planned Parenthood abortion clinic. So this is a story about it written by, by Alexandra DeSanctis, writes for National Review. Go Irish. Fellow Domer. Uh, the two individuals, Warner DePriest, a Students for Life of America employee and frequent sidewalk counselor outside the clinic, and Erica Caporaletti, a student at Towson University, were arrested for, quote, defacing public or private property. Defacing public property by writing with sidewalk chalk. DePriest said afterwards that the police did not inform either him or Caporaletti of their Miranda rights and did not charge them for about 40 minutes. They were later released with a citation. According to a spokesperson from Students for Life of America, which helped to organize the demonstration, the city had issued a permit allowing them to paint the message. So so these are people who have a permit to do this. All they're doing is writing with sidewalk chalk on the street, which frankly, like the the notion that a cop would arrest you for it is absurd. Even if it were against the law, I mean, that, that sidewalk chalk is one. Th- OK, it's, it's almost certainly a statute that was written with graffiti in mind, not easily washable sidewalk chalk. According to a spokesperson from Students for Life of America, the city had issued a permit allowing them to paint the message. As of Saturday evening, D.C.'s Department of Transportation, which issues such permits, had not responded to a Washington Post inquiry about whether they had 
whether that permit had indeed been issued. So they're stonewalling because they don't want to reveal that they had allowed it. The controversy is especially interesting in light of the protests and rioting that have taken place across the country in recent months, with no small share taking place in D.C. In June, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser herself commissioned a large painting of the slogan Black Lives Matter on the 16th Street Northwest block just outside the White House. Shortly thereafter, city officials permitted protesters to paint the slogan Defund the Police right beside Bowser's initial painting. So not on the sidewalk, in the street. And any of you who saw that picture of of that big Black Lives Matter, you know, wording that was written in the street, it was huge big yellow block letters and then defund the police huge big yellow block letters on the road okay which presumably is a much bigger hassle than one kid or, or two people whatever using sidewalk chalk to write something in an open letter to Muriel Bowser last month Kristen Hawkins the president of SFLA and Dean Nelson the chairman of the Frederick Douglass Foundation announced their intention to paint the Black Preborn Lives Matter message and noted that they had applied for the appropriate permit. You must allow SFLA and FDF to paint its Black Preborn Lives Matter message, they wrote. Your original decision to to paint Black Lives Matter on the street is government speech. However, your decision to allow protesters to paint defund the police open the streets up as a public forum. You are not permitted to discriminate on the basis of viewpoint in making determinations relating to public assemblies and public fora. Okay. And this is this is this is where we get to the important thing. And this is where we are seeing a real breakdown of the First Amendment. Okay, what is going on throughout coronavirus? You have local and state officials who have more power than they have ever had before. And they're letting us know exactly how they are going to use it, (laughs) how they would use it under normal normal circumstances. Okay. Basically, what they are doing is just saying, we believe some speech is speechier than other speech. We believe some messages are more important than other messages. The core idea of the First Amendment is not that it protects any expression whatsoever, any expressive content whatsoever. The idea of the First Amendment is that it is supposed to protect speech that centers around political, cultural, religious and social messages. That's sort of the core of what the First Amendment is supposed to protect. Okay, The standards that courts use to assess something outside of that are different. Okay, So when you're engaged in advertising speech, that's a little different from you know me writing a treatise on government or me trying to make a political declaration like black preborn lives matter when in, when I'm trying to protest an abortion clinic okay uh, advertising speech in advertising is subject to more regulation okay false speech in advertising etc it's subject to more regulation the government can regulate it more and there are all kinds of other speech that's subject to more regulation um pornography is subject to much more regulation because it's not really speech it's not really serious discussion centered around these kind of core topics like politics, culture, religion, social, etc. It's smut, okay? It's subject to more government regulation. Cursing, subject to more government regulation, okay? That's why the FCC can, you know, censor certain things like, okay, the FCC can issue fines for Janet Jackson's boob showing during the Super Bowl, okay? That's censored speech. They're allowed to censor it because 
Janet Jackson showing her boobs is not the core stuff that the First Amendment is designed to protect. Nor are things like, you know, inciting a crowd to violence by yelling, get him, at a, telling an angry mob who wants to beat up a black guy, go get him. Okay, that is not protected speech. You can and should be prosecuted for that. Okay, that's called incitement. Okay, it's a kind of violence. Slander and libel. Okay, publishing false things about some people in certain contexts. That is also prosecutable. That's also subject to regulation, right? So the core of what the First Amendment is supposed to do is protect speech on these core questions. Religion, culture, society, politics, etc., Now, if you're the government, you can't be picking and choosing, okay? You can't be picking and choosing the kinds of messages you want to promote and the kinds of messages you don't. Now, the government can speak on its behalf and say things it believes in. That's fine. Okay, the Trump administration doesn't need to give equal time. The Trump administration can issue speech promoting, let's say, a pro-life position. The Trump administration, in its speaking, doesn't have to say pro-choice things. But if you're providing an open forum... If you're providing a forum where the public can say stuff, can write stuff, okay, then you got to let anyone do it. And what did we see in D.C.? What we saw in D.C. was protesters who said, we want to write defund the police on the street right in front of the White House. And the city said, okay. Well, by doing that, guess what? The street is now a public forum. And if pro-lifers want to write there, they should be allowed to write there. So here you have these pro-lifers who said, look, the street is more intrusive. We just want to do this on the sidewalk. We've asked for a permit. We've got a permit. We're just going to use sidewalk chalk. It's less permanent than paint. And yet, those people get arrested. Arrested for sidewalk chalk. Not graffiti. Not paint. Sidewalk chalk. And this is where we get to the heart of the matter. The, the, this is where liberalism seems to go. The dominant messages of liberalism, of liberalism at, even in the sense of classic liberalism, the notion that there is no actual morality, the only thing that we as a government will shoot for as far as morality is allowing people to maximize their freedom, allowing people to make their own free choices for themselves, anything that inhibits the free choices of others must be shut down and repressed. And so the messages of people who believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, those messages are disfavored. The messages of those who say, hey, uh, abortion is wrong and you should not do that, well, those messages must be disfavored because they are trampling upon the freedom to do what I want with my body. And this is, this is the ugly face of liberalism where behind the language of freedom, what we really have is oppression. What we really have is oppression of any viewpoint that is genuinely disfavored. It is far more autocratic than the autocracy of, say, a confessional state. This is the natural end. When you see Bill de Blasio saying, yes, you can meet in large groups to protest Black Lives Matter, but you Orthodox Jews, don't you dare get together to have meetings or to you know, pray in your synagogues. There's something deeply, deeply wrong. And what is so deeply, deeply wrong is 
their conception of the good is different. They have a substantive view of the good that is different and it fits into their system. They don't even think they're violating the First Amendment. Because what we are saying and what we are doing is not actual speech in their mind. It is bigotry. It is violence. That's what they think of us. And so they fight back. And so they continue to trample on the First Amendment rights of normal people who just want to go to church. And they'll continue to give us these you know, canned BS answers for why somehow it's safe to go to Costco or Home Depot to buy a barbecue. And no, this is not any shade on Costco or Home Depot for selling barbecues. But the notion that somehow it's safer to go to Costco or Home Depot or Best Buy to get a barbecue or to buy a big screen TV, that's not as safe, or, or excuse me, that that is somehow safer than going to church. This is just this is just liberalism. This is where liberalism goes. You know, I know people cite Orwell all the time, and to to the point where it almost becomes a cliche. But I've been laughing the last few days how you know four legs good, two legs bad, and how that has become you know you know two legs uh, four legs good, two legs better. I've been laughing at the notion that, you know, one of the one of the themes in 1984, which is sort of uh, George Orwell's bigger book rather than Animal Farm. One of the themes and one of the things that they describe in 1984 is this dystopian future where you wake up and you're greeted by someone interacting with you from a screen to educate you in the basic dictates of socialism and to communicate messages from the party. And that's exactly what we're going to have kids in schools do. (laughs) starting this fall wake up and talk with your government employee through a screen to get your education that's precisely that's what's happening it's happening right now so at any rate uh that went a whole bunch of different directions but if you actually believe in the stuff that we believe we have to keep fighting we have to use the mechanism of the first amendment to say no Our speech is valuable. You can't just suppress our speech and allow the speech of people you like. That's not what the government's allowed to do, and we are going to fight back against it. All right, when we come back, we're going to get to an interesting story out of Chicago, how the mayor of Chicago is trying to blame the states around Illinois for all their gun violence. Eh, not so fast. We'll get to that coming up next. The John Girardi Show, Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. The John Girardi Show, Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. So the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, has uh, not exactly covered herself in glory since the massive violent protests that broke out in the wake of George Floyd's death, uh, came to Chicago. By the way, it, this is the funny thing about whether to call them violent or mostly peaceful, but they burned down a police precinct, or mostly peaceful, but they smashed several store windows. Look, um, I'm sorry that this is how human nature works, but um, if I have a house party and everyone has a great time and uh, people don't get drunk and 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 they enjoy themselves and they have pleasant conversation um 
but one of the guests at my party murders another person in the party. Okay, what's going to characterize that party is the murder, not the everyone else having a good time. All right. So, you know, uh, if you're talking about protest, uh, you know, a protest where things are mostly peaceful, except for the group of you know, there are there are a hundred or a hundred fifty people there who are who are peaceful. But if you've got ten people trying to throw Molotov cocktails into a federal courthouse and uh, destroy it, uh, guess what? Uh, we're gonna kind of focus on the violent people because that's just kind of how human nature works. Anyway, just just thought I'd give that aside about how people think about and report on these things. Sorry that human nature is such that you know the the unremarkable does not give get as much remark as the remarkable, all right? Now, Lori Lightfoot, what's she doing? She's the mayor of Chicago. She's going on this little campaign of blaming other states for all of the gun violence that exists in Chicago, in Illinois, which has, you know, really strict gun control laws. And so people say, well, how, how do you have so much gun violence if you have such great gun control? She says, quote, we are being inundated with guns from states that have virtually no gun control, no background checks, no ban on assault weapons. That is hurting cities like Chicago. Then David Harsanyi is writing about this in National Review, and he writes, although these accusations have been leveled by Chicago politicians for decades now, they are a myth. For one thing, there is no state in the nation with, quote, virtually no gun control or, quote, no background checks. Every time anyone in the United States purchases a gun from a federal firearms licensee, FFL, a gun store, a gun show, it doesn't matter, the seller runs a background check on the buyer through the NICS, National Instant Criminal Background Check System database. In some cases, the FFL checks to see if the buyer has purchased a background check, has passed a background check via a state-issued concealed carry permit. In states that allow individual private sales, it is illegal to knowingly sell to anyone you believe is obtaining a firearm for criminal purpose. Those who cross state lines to buy guns undergo the same background check, and the sale is processed by an FFL in the buyer's home state. The exact same laws apply to all online sales. The vast majority of Americans obtain their guns in this matter, and they rarely commit crimes. Around 7% of criminals in prison bought weapons using their real names. Okay, so again... Gun control is only so effective in stopping criminals from committing crimes. Gun control laws are only so effective in stopping lawless people, people who break the law, from committing crimes. Okay? Because they're not going to follow the law. So we, we get to sort of the, the key thing here where Lori Lightfoot is basically, like, she keeps up with this idea that, oh, the reason why we have all this gun violence is because we're inundated by guns from other places. She says that 60% of the guns used in Chicago murders are bought from out of state. Uh, This is not exactly true. Even if we trusted the city's data, most guns used in Illinois crimes are bought in-state. If gun laws in Illinois, which earns a grade of A- A- from the pro-gun control Gifford Law Center, tied for second highest in the country after New Jersey, are more effective than gun laws in Missouri, Wisconsin, or Indiana, why is it that FFL dealers in suburban Cook County are the origin point for a third of the gun crimes recovered in Chicago and home to seven of the top ten source dealers? According to the Trace study, 11.2% of all gun crimes recovered in Chicago could be tracked to just two gun shops. The only reason it seems criminals take the drive to Indiana is because local gun shops are tapped out. 
So there you go. It seems that these gun control laws that the left proposes aren't really doing much to stop gun violence. That's going to do it for us. We'll see you tomorrow on The John Girardi Show. Buck Sexton coming up next. The John Girardi Show. Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.